This is The Brian Hayes Show on TSN 1050, the voice of Toronto sports. Well, that was an incredibly cool scene last night. Josh Donaldson winning the MVP. Well-deserved. I was getting a little bit scared. I don't know if you caught the uh, pregame show or the award show on MLB Network. But the way they were breaking down Mike Trout's season and the numbers that he put up, they started really focusing on the fact that he had a better and higher OPS than Donaldson. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. They're planting the seed. They are planting the seed for why Trout is going to win and why he should win and why people in Toronto and Blue Jays fans should not freak out when he wins. And yet, that was all for naught. Even though Ken Rosenthal was describing exactly why he picked Mike Trout over Josh Donaldson, and he made a very reasonable explanation and a very reasonable case. In the end, Donaldson won, and it was in a landslide. He received... 23 of the 30 first-place votes, as he should have. He was the man this year, and it was very, very cool to see. And it was very, very cool, I think, as Blue Jays fans to witness that and just to really you know, take a second to, to look back on the season that he had. The attitude he brought, the production he brought, he was unbelievable. His durability, he was out there every single day. Um, and I loved what he said with Kate. He was, he was on SportsCenter last night with Kate Burness, and he said, I want to retire a Blue Jay. This is a guy who's 29. He's really only been an everyday player for three or four years. He's still in arbitration. He still has simply arbitration rights, and he's talking long-term. He said he wants to retire a Blue Jay. He'd like to spend the rest of his career here, and that's after one year. It was a magical year, but um, it really makes you wonder, like, his window for success. Mike Trout is going to win multiple MVPs. Just because Donaldson won this year doesn't mean Donaldson actually is the best player in the American League. No one's taking Donaldson over Mike Trout. And that's not a shot at Donaldson. That's pumping the tires of Trout. This Mike Trout's unbelievable. This is Mike Trout in Bryce Harper's world. We just happen to be living in it in Major League Baseball. So Trout's going to get his. But I would think Donaldson at 29, I think he's got four or five more years at least where he can push for another MVP or two. We'll get to your phone calls, emails, and tweets on Donaldson on the Raptors in action tonight in L.A. Double shot from the Maple Leafs this weekend. Tony Romo returning. I got a lot of things to say on that. Let's kick off the afternoon with Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. How would you define that window for success for Josh Donaldson? That's a, it's a really interesting question, Hayes, because he's different, right? Like he's not he, – in the major leagues, I'm going to look it up right now. He's only played 563 games. Um, he's one of those guys, and one of the reasons that Anthopoulos traded for him in the first place is that he's one of those guys who lives and breathes this, who works at it, who, to, who doesn't just show up. He keeps himself in shape. He tries to get better every day. He's one of those kind of self-motivated guys. And the closest you might come to that is a guy like Jose Bautista, who Bautista, when he got here, hadn't played an awful lot in the major leagues. Um, and has carried his success to age now 35, uh, and is not really hasn't really slowed down an awful lot. Now that's power, and maybe power is a little more portable than Donaldson's various skill set. But I think Donaldson's got like if you if you were to sign Josh Donaldson tomorrow to a seven year deal, I would have no problem with that whatsoever. 
Absolutely. Because I think what you're getting is his absolute prime. And it's not like hockey where a guy, once he's 26, 27, starts to slow and the production starts to drop. In baseball, you can still be a, a hell of a player into your mid-30s without – if you're a guy who works at it and genetically you're all right, and I think Donaldson has shown kind of evidence that he is that, then, yeah, I would have no problem with that whatsoever. Because there are restrictions on his free agency, uh, no one's worried that he's going anywhere. He's going to continue mm-hmm. to be a Blue Jay. So from that standpoint, I understand why more focus is on Price, on Granke, on, on Estrada last week, on what they're going to do this upcoming offseason. But I, I have to say, and I guess I'm a part of this crowd. I mean, I'm a, I'm a guy who, who maybe sparks conversation or certainly talks about the sports scene in this town daily. I haven't had one conversation about when they're going to sign him and how long they should sign him for and how much money they should give him. Are you a little bit surprised from that standpoint that this is not a more talked-about topic, the idea of locking him up long-term? Uh, see, this, is, this goes back to Alex, one of Alex Anthopoulos' favorite words, control. Right, like he's under control. They've got his. They've got him for as um, not as long as they want him, but there's no urgency whatsoever. And as long as Donaldson wants to be here, and as long as they treat him well, then that's a match, right? Like so, uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication that Donaldson wants to be anywhere else. They certainly don't want him to be anywhere else. So what you've got is just the assumption that it'll happen. And I'm one of those people. I assume it's going to happen. Because right now, I can't see any impediment for that kind of marriage to take place. With Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. Uh, Raptors in L.A. tonight taking on Kobe and the Lakers. This might be the last time they see Kobe at the Staples Center representing the Lakers if he decides to retire this year or even if he just simply moves on. And I was thinking about that last night. And there's a part of me that believes, at least outside of this city, the defining moment of the Raptors' history might be that Kobe 81-point game. Um, there's there's not that many other options out there. Like here in Toronto, I feel like it could be that year the the Raps beat the Bulls. I think that was in '96 down at the Rogers Center, and the Bulls went 72 and 10, and the Raptors were horrible, but they found a way to beat Jordan that game, and there were 35, 40,000 people in attendance. That still seems to hold a lot of weight in this fan base. I think Vince at the All Star Game and the dunk contest that was a certainly a watershed moment. But I, I think it might be Kobe's 81. It might be Kobe's 81 back in the day. Um, where would you stand on that? Could that be the defining moment of the Raptors' existence? High point is probably Vince's dunk contest. Low points are probably too many to mention. Most famous point is probably 81. Um, because to put it in context, I mean, Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 in an era where you could score 100. Like, that game was close. The 81-point game was close into the second half. It was close into the fourth quarter. They needed Kobe to score all those points in order to win. And Sam Mitchell didn't double-team him. And Jalen Rose watched it happen, and Joey Graham and Morris Peterson and all of that. Um, the, the Raptors have – I remember when I was, when I was in Vancouver and I, I, I used to get tickets to the Grizzlies games. And I wouldn't go to watch the Grizzlies, really. I would go because one time I saw Charles Barkley score 26 points in 25 minutes and get ejected. One time I saw Hakeem Olajuwon score 42. And one time I saw Grant Hill get a triple-double. That's what it is with the Raptors, and that has been for a lot of years. And they're only now approaching the realm where 
they might define themselves as opposed to someone else defining them, and they're still not there. Yeah, they're not. And, you know, the, the positive stories, again, it's very difficult to find them. Like, I guess they won that one best-of-five series, and I don't remember a defining moment. Um, obviously, Vince against Philly, Game 7, if he hit that shot, that certainly would be a defining moment. He didn't, so that becomes one that at least is defining, but not from a positive standpoint, clearly a negative standpoint. The, the drafting of Charlie Villanueva, I remember that, like the shock value that came with it. Uh, oh, the drafting of Bargnani, I guess. but Rafael Araujo. Yeah, Araujo for sure. Who, that was a bad Babcock move. When they drafted him, my lead to that story was Rob Babcock's first pick as the general manager of the Raptors was no slam dunk and no slam dunker, if I remember. Um, the, if you look at like that one best of five against the Knicks, that's wonderful. That's yeah, you win the the one best of five against the Knicks. That's the one playoff series they've ever won. Guess uh, up until 2013, that was the only playoff win the year before when they lost to the Knicks. That was the only time the Knicks had won a playoff series in about 12 years, in a span of about 12 years. Like the the Knicks beating the Knicks meant almost nothing. Not entirely nothing, but almost nothing. Um, and this team in general, if you look at like just just who who's the defining player in franchise history is still Vince. Who's the second defining player in history? It's Chris Bosh. And as much as Masai has taken away a lot of the of the kind of downcast eyes around the Raptors, right? Like a lot of the kind of excuse me, we're never going to win excuses. Masai Ujiri has blown a lot of those away. But look at it this way. He's a magical recruiter, and that's what you have to be in the league right now is you almost have to be a college recruiter, which is the only thing that makes the Sacramento Kings, considering John Calipari, the Kentucky coach, not a joke, is that you need to be able to pull players to you. Ujiri, in his pursuit of LaMarcus Aldridge, Aldridge really was fascinated by the vision that was being put in front of him, by the idea of the Raptors, by the fan base, all of that. And he still never came to town. Right, so this franchise is in better shape than it's probably been at any time in the two decades that it's existed, and it's still not a have. It's still not a place that people want to be yet. Um, and until it is, there's they're going to be the Raptors. With Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star, uh, I'm fascinated by this Tony Romo story, and he's going to return this week and. They're down in Miami, and it's an absolute must-win because I believe on U.S. Thanksgiving they have Carolina rolling through town, and uh-huh. that's going to be really, really difficult. And I just don't see a scenario where the Cowboys storm back and find a way to win this. I think there's too much turmoil there. And I think it's amazing what's happened here with Romo, how quickly he's become this legend, this almost mythical player that can be a savior, can come back, and he's the man. And this all changed over the course of, like, I want to say 12 months, but I'm not even convinced that that's the case. I think it's over the course of seven or eight weeks. I think in a strange way, this injury was the greatest thing to ever happen to Tony Romo's reputation because forever he was a guy that people goofed on. Forever he was a guy that threw away games late into the fourth quarter. He was a guy that left you wanting more. Very likable guy. Great story, but could never get it done. And now all of a sudden you've got Romo returning and you would think this was, you know, Marino in the 90s, Tom Brady coming back. You would think that people are looking at Tony Romo almost expecting him to go 7-0 and run the table here. And in the strangest way, I really think this, this injury actually helped 
Romo. I, I think it helped his image because the team imploded without him. Where do you stand on the Romo myth and whether or not he can possibly live up to it now that he is back, this hype that is coming with his return to the lineup? Now, see, Hayes, we should have talked about nothing else because I have very many thoughts about Tony. Okay, good. I'm going I'm to read you out a series of numbers. Now, passer rating has been inflated in the NFL over the last last probably 15 years to the point where nine of the eight of the top ten passer ratings of all time are guys who are playing right now. Okay, so you have to take that a little bit into account. Now, number one all time in career passer rating is Aaron Rodgers, 105.8. Some other notables. Tom Brady, fifth all-time, 96.6. Peyton Manning, sixth all-time, 96.5. Russell Wilson, third all-time, 97.4, although that's a very short window. Tony Romo is second all-time in passer rating at 97.6. He has the most comeback wins of anyone in the last 10 years, although part of that is a, it's a funny stack. you got to be behind in order for it to happen, and maybe Tom Brady hasn't been as behind as many times as, as Tony Romo has. And what I think has happened with him his failures have been on national television so often that they colored our opinion of who he actually was. Like, I now cheer – I don't cheer for the Cowboys ever because uh, I think Jerry Jones is awful and now the Greg Hardy thing makes it even harder. But I've always cheered for the idea of Tony Romo with a game-winning drive on the line on national TV because I think it's the best theater or close to the best theater in sports, right? Everyone gathers around to watch and see what Tony Romo is going to do this time. And I think he's actually a pretty good quarterback. I think he's a very good quarterback. I think he's played through a ton of pain, played through a bad back injury last year. And when you lose a guy who is that good, and I think Tony Romo is in kind of the second tier of quarterbacks in the league and kind of your Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger range. Um, you don't, if, unless you have a really good backup, you're, you're going to fall apart, and that's what's happened to the Cowboys. But what's happened with Romo is like this fallacy of evidence. I don't know the actual name for it, but we've seen his failures so much that it, we think that he always fails, and he doesn't. And, and in I fact, think that's, he, yeah. He's fixed it more often than he's thrown it away. But we, we have this idea of, like, when you say Tony Romo to a sports fan, he means one thing, and it's not the good thing. No, it's choker. And I think that's the catch 22 is that. Because he's on Dallas, there's so much focus on him, and the majority of that focus can be on the negative, yet because mm-hmm. he's on Dallas, that's why he's so popular, right? I mean, that's why he is who he is. Where I think you're right. If he's been playing in Tennessee throughout his career and putting up these numbers, he's looked upon so differently because Tennessee is a team that nobody cares about, where Dallas is a team that everyone either loves or hates. They're the classic love or hate. There's no gray area with the Dallas Cowboys. No one is just kind of a fan or just kind of dislikes them. And I think that is that is what, what makes the whole Tony Romo story so much more amazing. And there's a part of me that, that has always looked at it in a similar fashion to the way that you just uh, pointed it out, uh, Bruce, the fact that, you know, he's... He's a good guy. He's an easy guy to like, and he feels like he just he doesn't jive with what everything Jerry Jones represents. Yet I've always found the best theater is watching him choke, mm-hmm. is watching him melt down. And maybe it's because I do hate the Cowboys, so it's easy for me to hate on them, and, and I almost enjoy the fact that they're going to melt down in a way. Um, and I, would get, I get the impression like the majority of people see it the same way I do, where they find it more interesting, more entertaining, if and when Romo falls apart. Yeah, if you don't love the Cowboys, you do hate them. There's not a lot of middle ground on that, especially under the Jerry Jones era, right? Uh, but Tony Romo 
if he'd gone to a different team, I wonder how we'd view him. I really do. Because a guy who was undrafted out of eastern Illinois, who came out of nowhere, right? Like, who worked his way to being a really good quarterback for a team that was built by an insane, lunatic, billionaire general manager, basically. Um, and if, if Tony Romo, let's say that Tony Romo was the backup to, to Drew Bledsoe that day in New England and, had, and, and, was, and was coached by Bill Belichick over the last 10 years, what would he be? And we'll never know, right? We'll never have any idea. And people might have been cheering against him for a different reason because people like cheering against the Patriots in a kind of a different, less cartoonish reality show way than they do, or at least until recently, than they do cheer against the Cowboys. But I just wonder, man, like he's had incompetent coaching. He's had good offensive lines and crazy receivers, talented receivers. Um, I just wonder if he'd been in a different place, what would we see? Like, how would we see Tony Romo? If Tom Brady had been a Dallas Cowboy, how would we see Tom Brady? Who would he be? And we're never going to know. And I suspect that they would be closer to one another than they are now, even though, again, on his career, Tony Romo's got a better passer rating than Tom Brady. Yeah, it's the ultimate case study of you know owners and stability and how it can either prop some player up or just ruin a player. And I think you, you almost have to, you have to give Romo more credit that somehow there's still a part of him that is really likable. Like his story is uh-huh. very likable and everything you hear about him and every time he speaks with the press, he seems like a really, really laid back, likable guy. And his numbers indicate that he's a very good quarterback because he is a very good quarterback. And for him to even be granted that kind of credit in that kind of an, that kind of an environment throughout his career, I, I think is a remarkable success story because well, Jerry mm-hmm. Jones just represents poison. He's just poisonous. Yeah, well, especially now with the Greg Hardy stuff, right, where it's really showing who he is. Um, but Romo, I think, is a, is a kid who got fame. The Jessica Simpson stuff hurt him a little bit in terms of how he was viewed. But I, I just think of that story. of There was that one time, it was a few years ago now, where he's driving home, and I think it might have been a rainy night in Dallas, and he saw someone pull over to the side of the road with a flat tire, and he pulled over and he changed the tire for them, right? Like, you don't fake that, right? You don't do that to get publicity. There's easier ways to get positive publicity than that. I think at his heart, Tony Romo, and we don't really know these guys, but from what, what I can tell, he's not a bad guy. He's a guy who's kind of tried to do his best and has failed. And here's one of my favorite things about Tony Romo. He has failed spectacularly on national TV a lot of times, which is why we're having this conversation in a lot of ways. But he keeps trying, right? Like, it's, he's never gun-shy because of it. He's never scared to try to make a play because of it. He keeps going for it. And I, I love that about him. Because that's all you can really ask any of us to do, right? Like, if you're going to fail, how do you get up? And Tony Romo keeps getting up. And I I can't cheer for him this season. I don't want to see the – I want I want Jerry Jones to be humiliated on national television as many times as possible. I just don't want it to be Tony Romo's fault that he is. Great stuff, buddy. Enjoy the weekend. We'll do it again soon. Always fun, Hayes. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star. And I don't think it will be Romo's fault. I think even with all this hype and all of this – expectation that is that is coming with his return. I, I think the team is so dysfunctional. I think the fact that they lost seven games in a row without him, even if they lose the next seven, they end up 2-14. and 14. I, I still don't think people will place the blame on Romo. I think the fact that he's coming back from a, a, a fairly significant injury and the fact that there's so many different negative things to, to focus on here, I'm not sure that, that he will get smoked or that he will take all of the blame. Where in years past, when the Cowboys failed, it was always a lazy take, but it was always Romo's fault. It was so easy to just say, oh, it's because of Romo. 
You know, Romo would throw for 450 yards, four touchdowns, but then throw that one pick with 30 seconds left in a tie game, and you're like, ah, oh, he sucks. You know, context, very important. But it really is a catch-22 when you consider, you know, who he is, his popularity, and the fact that you know him, and the fact that because you know him, you might like him. Or if he was anywhere else, if he wasn't in Dallas, he, you probably wouldn't even pay attention to him, or you might not pay attention to him. Or if you did, it would be in a very different light. But I think you can make the argument, him getting injured was the greatest thing to ever happen to his reputation. Tony Romo, a year and a half ago, was a guy that people goofed on all the time, a guy that people were just waiting to see him fail. For a lot of people, he was the reason why the Cowboys could not get over the hump. Now he gets injured, hasn't played in seven weeks, and he's a savior. He's Tony Jesus. He's going to come back and save the Cowboys' season. I don't know if he can possibly live up to that hype, but it's incredible what's happened with that hype. 416-870-1050. Text us 1050-50 with your name on Twitter at HayesTSN. We'll continue with these conversations throughout the afternoon. Joe Theismann will join me in about 10, 12 minutes. We'll get his take on Tony Romo and his reputation. And John Gibbons expected to join me just after 3 p.m. We look forward to that. This is The Brian Hayes Show. Joe Theismann will join me in about five minutes, get his thoughts on the return of Tony Romo. Can Romo possibly meet the hype? What's going on with Aaron Rodgers? Why is Rex Ryan so obsessed with Bill Belichick? Does Bill Belichick care at all about Rex Ryan? I don't think so. It's amazing when you watch Rex. Like Rex cannot stop just fawning over Bill Belichick and obsessing over Belichick and everything that he represents and everything that he is, and he is just begging Belichick to take the bait. He is begging Belichick to just say his name once publicly. He just wants Belichick to hit the mic and say Rex Ryan and then drop the mic. If he does that, I feel like Rex would retire a happy man. But Belichick's not going to do it. Belichick doesn't take the bait. Belichick doesn't care about Rex Ryan. And if he does, it's from a you know laughing at him standpoint. It's from behind closed doors, looking at Rex, listening to Rex, and saying, this guy is a lunatic. He will not stop obsessing about me. I'll bet you that's what Bill Belichick is thinking behind the scenes, and I wouldn't blame him. So we'll catch up with Joe in about uh, three or four minutes. Again, Josh Donaldson, it was a great scene last night, and we, we talked about this to kick off the hour, the fact that he told SportsCenter and Kate Burness uh, last night that he'd like to finish his career in Toronto, and he's 29 years old. He just won an MVP. I think he's got another four or five years in him of really high-end production, if not more than that. So I think he'll be in the running for MVP seasons. And if that's the case, even though I understand he's not going anywhere, he wants to be here, there is control from a Blue Jay standpoint. It's an arbitrary or it's a, an arbitration case that, that will end up happening, I would think. But I am a little bit surprised that, you know, the conversation about just simply locking him in and throwing away the key and not worrying about it anymore isn't being brought up more often. Like if he's looking for a five-year deal and you're going to have to pay him a lot of money, clearly, $20, $25 million a year, I don't know, maybe more than that. But that's the price of doing business. And when you've got the MVP, that's not a guy that you want to let go of. Talk to Oakland and Billy Bean about that. I say sign him up. Sign him up. Lock him in. That might be a great PR move as well. 
You know, they may not be that concerned about PR. They may not be that concerned about what happened with Anthopolis and ticket prices going up. And maybe they feel like, you know, the whole Anthopolis thing is now in the rearview mirror. And I'm sure for some people it is. Although that, that thought probably popped into a lot of Blue Jays fans' mind last night. The fact that Donaldson was here simply because Anthopolis pulled off a great trade. But if you lock in Donaldson for a five, six, seven-year deal, how many people are going to have a hot take saying that that's not the right move? How many people would be disappointed with that? I can't believe, I can't imagine there'd be many, if any at all. As for Mike Trout and the numbers he put up, you look at Bryce Harper, the youngest unanimous MVP in MLB history. He was unbelievable this year. And it is Harper and Trout. Those two represent each league, each league perfectly and Major League Baseball in general perfectly. Young guys just getting going. But I think Ken Rosenthal, his point on Trout being so good that he gets overlooked by voters who are trying to be creative or who are bored of Mike Trout, Ken Rosenthal pointed that out last night on the MLB Network, and I think that is spot-on analysis. It's a lot like LeBron James. You know, LeBron has his. LeBron has won MVPs. But LeBron is the MVP every single year he plays. And he probably should win it every single year. But I think voters say, ah, that's boring. Ah, I want to find someone else. And I think that's already happened here with Mike Trout. Uh, he's four years into his career. He's been top two in voting, I believe, every single year he's been in Major League Baseball. Yet he's only won the MVP once. And that's not to suggest that Cabrera shouldn't have won. It's not to suggest that Donaldson should not have won. Both guys, incredible seasons. Both guys right there with Trout, if not just a bit ahead of him. But I almost feel like this guy is so good, Mike Trout, that people are already bored of his greatness. They have to prove that they're thinking outside the box. Because this Mike Trout is something else. We've got some Bryce Harper audio we'll get to a little bit later in the afternoon. Something tells me this audio could stick to him for quite some time. It was on the MLB Network last night. So we'll get to that a little bit later in the afternoon. John Gibbons, hoping to catch up with him just after 3 p.m. What makes Donaldson such a great player? And how would he feel about giving Donaldson a long-term deal? We'll get to that more with John Gibbons just after 3 p.m. And Joe Theismann will join me. Can Tony Romo possibly meet the hype? We'll get into that more next. So somehow Jacksonville not only won last night, they found a way to cover the number. And I was not complaining about it, but that game turned out to be everything we thought that game would turn out to be. Two awful teams just grinding it out. Yet they're both in the playoff race. At least Jacksonville is anywhere. I think that's likely it for Tennessee. Jacksonville is right there with Houston and Indianapolis. And a chat about that, the return of Tony Romo. What's going on with Aaron Rodgers? We're joined now by longtime NFLer, former Argo as well. Back on the Brian Hayes Show, here is Joe Theismann. How you doing, Joe? I'm good, Brian. Good to join you again. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Um, when you look at that AFC South, man, this is something else. And now Andrew Luck's injured, and he's going to be out for a while. How do you see this division playing out with the Colts, the Texans, and the Jaguars all right there, yet none of them great teams? It looks eerily similar to the NFC South of last year. With Carolina and Tampa, Carolina won it with a losing record. Um, could well happen again in that particular division. So every year it seems like there's one division where nobody wants to run away. A little bit of the NFC East as well. Although you know you're not posting three and four, three wins and two wins. You're, you know, you're basically posting four and five at the juncture here by by most teams. 
And anybody that has an aspiration, I mean, it's not crazy to think the Cowboys, you know, can't get in, although they played the Giants twice, and that hasn't worked out very well for them. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just a little bit of the parity and also a little bit of transition in football because, you know, you look at young quarterbacks in that division, uh, you know, with Andrew and Marcus and uh, Royals. I mean, you've got – or Bortles, you've got you know a lot of young guys in that division, and it just goes to prove that it takes a little time to learn how to play the position. You mentioned the NFC East and what's going on with the Cowboys and them being 0-7 without Tony Romo, and I've spent a lot of this afternoon talking about Romo's return and how the expectations, it's amazing how, how high they are, where you consider you know Tony was a year and a half ago a whipping boy almost throughout the NFL, or it always felt like that. And now he leaves, they lose seven in a row without him, and it's like he's the savior, he's this guy who's going to come back and just be brilliant right from the hop. Uh, You've had experience returning from big injuries. What are your expectations when it comes to Tony Romo? Well, you know, I think he'll give them an emotional lift just stepping on the field. Uh, Players feed off of confidence, and that's what I believe Tony will bring to that entire football team. The defense won't feel like they're playing with one arm tied behind their back. The offense says, hey, look, we're going to be back. It doesn't make up for the fact that they really don't have a running game. Uh, they, you, know, you lost a quality back in DeMarco Murray. The offensive line is still very good. Jason Witten, over this seven-game period, has become the invisible man. I promise you, going forward in these next seven games, Jason Witten will become prominent again in what the Cowboys do offensively because Tony looks for him when he gets into tough situations. And Jason seems to find a way to be able to be there. I mean, I had Art Monk. You always seem to find somebody. When I played up up north, it was Mike Eben. You know, the guys, you know, you, they just find a way to find your eyes. And uh, I think Tony's going to give them a big emotional lift, but they're still going to have to play the game. You know, they're playing Miami. It's not necessarily a, a cakewalk. Um, you know, Ryan Tannehill is playing better football. But I would fully expect that they're more efficient on offense. But, but it speaks some, to something else, Brian, is just how – bad the backup situation is in the National Football League. I mean, last year we saw Arizona go through four quarterbacks. Probably would have been a Super Bowl team had Carson Palmer stayed healthy, evidence of what we see this year and when he was healthy last year. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys, you know, they're, just, they're searching for somebody to line up behind center to make good decisions with the football in their hands. Heck, you don't even have to throw it well. Just make good decisions. Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, continues to play ball. Um, and you, you look around this league at the older quarterbacks. That, you know, Matt Hasselbeck's probably going to play for a couple weeks now. He's 40 years old. So I, one of the big problems that we have in the National Football League is who is your number two? Well, and I get the impression, Joe, there's maybe 10, 12 teams in this league. They're not sure who their number one is. Exactly. I mean, that's a I mean, that's big what I'm problem. Saying. We, are, we are a quarterback-depleted league. And in, we count on the National Football League feeding the, the professional football ranks. Right. All right, we count on colleges, I should say, because there's no farm system. You know, I was, it's interesting. I was involved in a farm system called the UFL a number of years ago. Had a team down in Orlando I was part of. I thought it was the perfect scenario if the National Football League was willing to do that, to create an eight-team farm system of which four teams in the National Football League could draw players, linemen, defensive backs, quarterbacks, running backs, whatever, and, you know, we had coaches like Denny Green, Jim Fossil, um, Marty Schottenheimer. These were all coaches in the UFL. 
you know, guys of, of high quality success in the National Football League. So it wasn't like you would get someone who doesn't have experience. Now, you, you know, you're pulling guys off the street that have been sitting around for goodness knows how long. It's one of the, the gaps I think the National Football League could address and serve them better when it comes to depth on football teams. With Joe Thosman here on the Brian Hayes Show, TSN 1050 and on the TSN Go app. Uh, the Monday Nighter should be a great one this week with the Bills taking on the Patriots. And once again, it's the Rex Ryan Show. He will not stop talking about his fascination with Belichick and the Patriots. And he went off yesterday about how you know he feels like the beat reporters in New England make too big of a deal of this, yet it's always him that sparks it. And I guess today, earlier today, he was asked again about this rivalry between him and Belichick and the Bills and the Pats. And he said, quote, of course they want to bury me. No question they want to beat me, but this has nothing to do with me. It's something to do with our team. <laughs> I mean, is this guy that delusional, Joe? I mean, he's, he is. What's going he is. on here? Well, take a look at Rex's history. Okay, he dresses up like his brother with long hair and stuffs a pillow in his stomach. I mean, he, you know, he turns around faces away from the crowd. I mean, come on. You know, at, at, I would hope Rex would at least say, yeah, this is about me, but it's more important that we talk about our football teams. So at least acknowledge the fact that it is about you. That would be like Deion Sanders saying, I'm really not prime time. Or it would be like Des Bryant, oh, don't look at me. I mean, come on. I mean, it's, it's you know, coaches, players. It's the way the league has evolved. But, but don't deny people from what you see as fact. Because if he comes out and says, yeah, it's about me. We know it's about, hey, you've got a contract in Buffalo. Don't worry about it, Rex. You got to, and, and you know what? That's a pretty darn good football team. You know, they're talented if they can keep people healthy. Um, but the situation remains is, you know, he had this ongoing situation with Bill when he was in New York. And, Bill, and what have you heard from Bill Belichick? <laughs> Bill does not care about Rex. He could give a hoot. Yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, it's like, you know, and Rex tries to, in Rex's way, tries to diffuse this and say, oh, it's, it's not about me. Of course it is. Just come out and say it. It's about me. It's about my football team. That's fine. You don't have to say it's about my football team and me. We know how the order runs. It's, but it's, it's almost comical uh, when somebody tries to deny something that is so obvious. Oh, it's so transparent. It really is. And it sets up where if somehow the Bills beat the Patriots, then he, his ego will just be out of control. And then it really is all about him. He found a way to beat Belichick. He found a way to devise a plan that led to the Bills beating the unbeaten Patriots. And and I I don't think any of his players are really talking about it. Like if you were in that that locker room, if you were if you were the quarterback for the Bills and Rex Ryan was going on in this kind of charade that he always puts forth, how would you feel about it? How would you feel about being Rex Ryan's quarterback? You know, my comment would be very simple, Brian. Hey, that's Rex. That's it. That's Rex. Everybody knows who Rex is. Everybody knows he's a heck of a football coach. The problem is it, gets, it sort of gets lost in a lot of the rhetoric that winds up surrounding him. But um, he's, you know, he's, he runs a heck of a defense, and he's been a, a bit of a thorn in Bill's, Bill's side when it comes to being able to devise schemes. Remember, New England almost lost last week to the Giants. I mean, it was to the Redskins. They didn't play real well against them. The Redskins dropped nine balls, missed 18 tackles. So, I mean, it's interesting to me, this positioning of the New England Patriots looks eerily similar, similar to when they went 18-0 and about five years ago. You know, they struggled. They, they, they won a giant game on a call 
in the end zone when was it a catch, was it not a catch? In a last-minute kind of a scenario again. So it has an eerie resemblance to, okay, they've struggled a little bit. They've sort of dipped from where they were from an efficiency level. They've lost Julian Edelman. Will Danny Amendola be able to be Julian Edelman? That's going to be a big question. They're not the same team they were. Um, but I expect this to be a, a sound game for them. But, hey, they always struggled. The Pats always struggled in New York with the Giants. That's the way it's been the last few years. Beat him in the Super Bowl. And he struggled against uh, Rex Ryan defensive football teams. So it, it's a, that's what's exciting about this game to me. Not Rex. It should be a great one nonetheless. Uh, we always appreciate you taking time for us. We'll have to do it again soon. Thank you, Joe. Look forward to it, Brian. Thank you. And a happy uh, Thanksgiving to everyone out there and a safe one. You got it. There he is, Joe Thank Theismann. Uh, former Argo, longtime NFL, of course, talking about U.S. Thanksgiving. We'll celebrate it. We'll double down if we have to. You know I'm watching that game on Thursday night next week, Bears-Packers. And I wanted to ask him about Aaron Rodgers in Minnesota this week, but we got going on Rex, and it was just too good. This Rex Ryan is the most delusional human being on the planet. He is so delusional. Of course they want to bury me. No question they want to beat me. But this has nothing to do with me. It's something to do with our team. Like, he actually thinks Belichick and the Patriots, like, care about him at all. The Patriots laugh at Rex Ryan. They laugh at him. And I find him to be a fascinating guy. I think he's a really interesting guy. I think he's an easy guy to like. But I I don't know if I would want him to coach my favorite team. I think he would drive me nuts after a while. Like, he really actually believes that it's Rex Ryan playing the Patriots. Like, it's not the Bills. It's Rex Ryan against the New England Patriots. And if somehow the Bills win on Monday night, he will be thinking that. Like, I believe he will be thinking, I just did that. I threw the ball. I caught the ball. I ran the ball. I made the tackles. I caused turnovers. No I in team, but there is an M and an E. You can spell me in team. And that's Rex, man. Of course they want to bury me. Like Belichick even cares about Rex Ryan. Belichick has a 9-0 team. He's got four Super Bowls. He's not worried about old Rex in western New York. John Gibbons expected to join me just after 3 p.m. We look forward to that. And there was a myth that was busted. One of our favorite myths was busted. We'll let you hear the audio. We'll touch on that. And apparently the mom that hated on Cam Newton doesn't hate on him anymore. I'll tell you about that as well. This is The Brian Hayes Show. Hoping to catch up with John Gibbons just after 3 p.m. Jack Armstrong will join us ahead of the Raptors-Lakers game tonight. How about Golden State storming back and beating the Clippers last night? Steph Curry goes off for 40. After the game, he says, I had to be better than that. Okay. Like, that's a troll job, isn't it? I love Steph Curry. I love watching him play. But if you're some donkey player, like 12th man on the Philadelphia 76ers, are you listening to Steph Curry say he has to be better than that and thinking, stop? Like, stop insulting us? 
I think he had 40 points, nine boards, like six assists, five steals. Like it, his stat line was just stuffed. It was incredible. And he's like, yeah, got to be better than that. Okay, thank you. Bismack Biombo is ready to like throw up in his mouth. So we'll catch up with Jack. We'll uh, also touch on the Maple Leafs. Big weekend for them at Carolina tonight, at Boston tomorrow. First game against Boston without Phil Kessel in the lineup for a number of years. And it, it's going to feel very different. So we'll touch on all that coming up in the final hour. Uh, you know my fondness of Derek Jeter. Everything that Jeter represents. On the field, off the field, just brilliant. And there's always been this myth out there, this story, the legend of Jeter, that when he would hook up with different girls, he would give them a gift basket that was loaded with his own memorabilia. Like, I was just talking about Rex and his arrogance and how he's so self-centered. Hooking up with girls and then saying, here, gift basket with Derek Jeter memorabilia in it. When you are Derek Jeter, it's just a completely different level. That's the Hall of Fame of arrogant moves. And yet, I want to believe it. But Jeter caught up with Joe Buck recently, and he discussed that myth. When a young lady is 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 making her way either out of the door or out of your I life, you a, present them with a nice gift, gift basket. basket. <laughs> oh, hold on. But, but on top of it, it was a gift basket of my own memorabilia. <laughs> so it's a dumb story, right? Yeah. And you really have to be dumber to believe it. But right. they believe it. You did. It's just my own memorabilia. I'm signing my own stuff for here. Here's a, here's a picture. Right. But you know what I mean? Thanks. Would you put best wishes on it? Or? See, I still believe it. I, I, don't bo- I, I don't buy that he's trying to bust that myth. I, I just don't buy it. And maybe I don't want to buy it. It's like hearing that the tooth fairy doesn't exist. But he's getting married. He might be thinking about kids. I think there's a chance he wants to pull back on the reputation a little bit, but that's not going to work. There is something very special about a gift basket being handed out with your own memorabilia. Like, what would my memorabilia exist of? Like, Wrangler jeans being signed and, like, a gift card to Wild Wing. That's not the greatest. That, that wouldn't be the greatest haul, I wouldn't think. Anyway, uh, John Gibbons, hoping to catch up with him just after 3 p.m. Jack Armstrong coming up. I'll touch on that Cam Newton, the mom that hated on Cam Newton and how she's changed her tune. We'll try to get to that as well in the final hour. And big weekend for the Raps, big weekend for the Maple Leafs. All coming up in the final hour. This is the Brian Hayes Show.